Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 1 John chapter 1. This letter, as the name implies, was written by the Apostle John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John and the Revelation of John. He wrote these three little epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, very near to the end of his earthly life, and it was a very long earthly life. John was the last living apostle when he wrote these letters, and the only apostle to have died in his own bed. He was tortured and imprisoned at various stages of his life, but at the end he was free, and he was ministering to a cluster of churches in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And we believe that it was to those churches that John wrote these pastoral letters. Many of these churches in Asia Minor had originally been planted by the Apostle Paul. You may remember from our series on Acts that the Apostle Paul had set up shop in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. He stayed there for more than two years. That was actually the longest that Paul had stayed anywhere in his entire missionary career. He stayed there because the Lord was blessing the work. Acts 19.10 says this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, closed quote. So the entire region came under the sound of the gospel. Ephesus was a hub city. It was the market town and the cultural center. And people came into the city and they heard the gospel. And then they went back to their surrounding towns and villages and established churches. It was a remarkable time. But then a wave of false teaching went through the entire region that threatened to spoil all the good work that he had done. So Paul sent Timothy to try and put down this destructive movement. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Closed quote. Apparently, however, Timothy's efforts were not terribly effective. The false teaching grew and took root, so much so that Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.15, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Close quote. So it appeared that the entire work had been spoiled. This whole region was like that part of the field in the parable of the soils, the one where the seed sprung up quickly and looked very promising. But then because the roots were not deeply established, the whole thing withered and spoiled under the heat of the sun. That's exactly what happened here. But then in the providence of God, there was a huge influx of healthy Orthodox believers. In the late 80s, 60s, after the Apostle Paul had been executed by Nero, a huge wave of Jewish Christians who had been living in Jerusalem fled that city in advance of the Roman army and took up residence in the city of Ephesus. F.F. Bruce says here, The 60s of the first century, however, saw a welcome revitalizing of the apostolic Christianity in proconsular Asia. This was due to the immigration of a number of Christians from Palestine shortly before the outbreak of the Jewish War in A.D. 66, closed quote. 
Now, just as an aside, let us notice here that sometimes immigration is what saves a fading and failing nominal church. But however you feel about that, this is most likely how the Apostle John originally came to find himself in Asia Minor. He came as part of this group of refugees, and he slowly but surely pastored this church back to life. The church father, Jerome, tells a delightful story about John in his latter days in Asia Minor. Apparently, near the end of his life, his disciples would carry him on a litter to his various churches, and he would be taken to the center of the gathering, and he would summon his strength and deliver his characteristic charge. He would hold up one shaking finger, and he would say, little children love one another. That was about all he could muster at the end. But to those who knew him, those words spoke volumes. John's basic philosophy of ministry was that good doctrine would lead to good behavior, which would lead to good community. So love one another was basically the last point in every Johannine sermon. And you can see that same one, two, three progression in almost every chapter of this letter. Scholars tell us that there really is no sustained argument in 1 John like there is in most of Paul's letters. This is a letter filled with simple truths and simple applications. I love how David Jackman puts it. He says, John does not attempt a detailed analysis or critique of error. He has no need to do so. He proclaims the truth in the characteristic apostolic confidence that where the truth is declared and believed, error will be undermined and will ultimately collapse, closed quote. But to be clear, that is a statement about method, not motivation. It is clear that John was motivated to write this letter because of the influence of false teaching. Apparently, the false teaching that had nearly destroyed this church a generation earlier was making a comeback, and this time it had resulted in formal schism. He will talk openly about that in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Closed quote. And so, of course, these churches were traumatized by this schism. We have become somewhat used to church splits, much to our shame, but thanks be to God, they were not. They took this very seriously, and they asked some heartfelt questions. Are we the real Christians, or are they? Are we the church, or are they? Like trains on diverging tracks, these movements were beginning to believe and behave in very different ways. And so John is writing to reassure these dear people that they have chosen wisely. They have stayed on the old path, and it is better. Colin Cruz says helpfully here, This letter, written to urge the readers not to be led astray by those who had seceded from the Christian community, and to reassure them that they are in the truth, seeks to achieve its purpose by strengthening the reader's commitment to what they already know. That is, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which they heard from the beginning, closed quote. Historians and commentators debate amongst themselves as to the precise nature of this early heresy. It is generally thought to be a sort of early or proto-Gnosticism. 
Certainly there were people who denied the bodily implications of the Christian faith, and we can hear John pushing back against that. They may have denied the doctrine of the incarnation and the bodily resurrection. Certainly these doctrines came under assault in the later and more fully developed versions of this heresy. However, as mentioned, John doesn't spend a great deal of time deconstructing the heresy in view here. He merely reminds them of the things they have been taught from the beginning. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Well, if you're a Bible reader, then you are probably hearing a couple of very intentional echoes in this passage. You're probably hearing an echo, first of all, of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you might be also hearing an echo of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is saying here that the real gospel is an old gospel. And it certainly cannot be edited by first century Roman pagans living in Asia Minor. The gospel, this word of life, is woven into the very fabric of creation. The gospel was in the mind of God before he created a single human being. Now, the older members of the congregation might even have remembered hearing words just like this from their founder, the Apostle Paul. He had said to them in Ephesians 3.11 that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul goes back even further than John here. Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ fulfilled an eternal plan and purpose of Almighty God, an idea that does not encourage recent adherence to modify and innovate in response to cultural pressure. And that is exactly what was happening. One commentator puts it simply. He says, the errors of John's day were really an accommodation of Christian faith to the prevailing ideas of the secular culture, closed quote. And of course, that is ridiculous, John says. The, the real gospel is ancient. It is eternal. And it originated in the mind of Almighty God. It is the word of life. Verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete." Here John says delightfully that this word of life is actually a person. His careful wording here reminds us once again of the prologue to his gospel. The word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the father's only son. So in John's teaching, the message and the man can never be separated. The Pillar New Testament commentary picks up on that here, saying, It is clear from the foregoing that when the author says, We proclaim concerning the word of life, he has in mind something much more than a spoken message. He proclaims the word of life, which he has heard, seen, and touched. As will become clear in what follows, 
He proclaims a message that has been embodied in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, closed quote. So the gospel is Jesus. It is what Jesus says. It is what Jesus does. It is what Jesus is. Jesus is the gospel. But of course, you've got to have the right Jesus to enjoy the benefits of the real gospel. And that's why you have to be in fellowship with the apostles. The we in verse 4 is the apostolic we. We have seen and proclaimed to you the real Jesus, the real gospel. We are writing these things to you that our joy may be complete. John is saying that there is no lasting joy outside the apostolic gospel. There may be short-term convenience, but there is no lasting joy. Only the apostolic gospel, only the Christ of Scripture can bring you into fellowship with God. And now John begins to talk about God in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If there is an intentional arrangement to this letter, it appears to revolve around two great foundational Christian truths, that God is light, as stated here, and that God is our Father, as stated in chapter 3. In each case, an assertion is made, and then several rather obvious implications are drawn out. The assertion here is that God is light, and this, of course, is no new teaching. John says that this is the message that they've been hearing about from the beginning. This teaching, John says, goes back all the way to Jesus himself. So John starts with something they could all agree upon. He lays a foundation stone, and then he slowly but surely begins to build up from there. God is light. To a first-century congregation steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, no doubt that language implies holiness, life-giving power, and moral righteousness. Those are all common biblical associations with the concept of light. Therefore, if God is light, then it follows that those who say they are walking in the light will manifest certain predictable characteristics. That's where John goes next. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I mentioned earlier that most commentators identify the particular heresy in view here as an early version of what came to be known as Gnosticism. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word for knowledge. Basically, these folks wanted to retain the philosophy and the insights of Christianity while editing out all the physical, base, and human aspects. They didn't tend to like the incarnation. They didn't like the cross. They didn't like the resurrection. All of that was too crass, too physical, and too human. They wanted to rise above that. They wanted to be spiritual people. And in the process, these folks came to believe that they were basically beyond the concerns of the body. 
F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, these new teachers claimed to have reached such an advanced stage in spiritual experience that they were beyond good and evil, closed quote. Now, there appear to have been two different versions of this particular distortion. Some said a person could become so spiritual that they would no longer even feel the tug of the old flesh. They would achieve a state of moral perfection. Others said that there was really no need to even concern yourself with things done in the body, whether good or evil, since real religion was a matter of the spirit. You can hear John pushing back in both directions. In verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So if you deny that you have a sin nature, if you deny that there are contrary desires at war within your soul, then you're not a Christian. The truth is not in you. Then he pushes back the other way in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if you say that nothing you do is sin because it only happens in the body, then you're also not a Christian because you're making God a liar. Why would Jesus have died on the cross for your sins if your sins do not matter? They do matter. And if you really knew God, then you would know that. God is light. And if you walk with him, then you hate your sin. That's implication number one. All real believers despise and renounce their sin. They can't tolerate it. They hate it. So whenever they do sin, they make a beeline for the cross. They need that sin to be obliterated. They want it cast into the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far they want their sin removed from them. And they know exactly where to go to get it. They go to the cross. That's what John says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that verse sounds like music to your soul, if that verse characterizes your approach to remaining sin in your life, then good news. You are a Christian. That's what Christians do because God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.